You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Hello, uh, I'm uh, Chris. I'm one of the hosts uh, of this show, and uh, we are recording this in the middle of a very heavy week. And so I'm very interested to see what uh, what the suffering of our current time, uh, how it shows up in this episode of this podcast, and what it'll be like when we listen back to it in a year. Uh, but I'm not here by myself. I have my other two dear friends with me. I'm Jan. Uh live in St. Paul. I'm another host. And I'm Marguerite in Apple Valley, a suburb, another host. Yeah, you two are kind of uh, uh, right in the middle of all this going yeah. on uh, in uh, in the Twin Cities right now. Yeah, it's intense. I guess we are always doing what Julian was trying to do and making sense of uh, suffering and, uh, well, just the imperfections of a world that God created, but that doesn't always feel like it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have no answers. (laughs) I don't know if uh, Julian has all the answers, but she has some revelations. And so what we're, what we're going to do is return to her revelations. We're in chapters 16 and 17 and 18, 15, 16 and 17. 17. Okay. Uh, And I thought I read the wrong chapters. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've got my bookmark in the wrong place. So, uh, yeah, let's just dive in. Chapter 15. The most excellent spiritual pleasure in her soul. Completely filled with everlasting certainty, powerfully sustained without any painful fear. Sounds wonderful right now. But it doesn't last for her. So she enters, then this is kind of the the meditation of this particular chapter, she swings back and forth between this complete pleasure, certainty, fearlessness, repose, peace, joy Mm -hmm. on one hand, and then plunged into the depths of, uh, sadness, the opposite sadness and weariness of life, annoyance with myself, (laughs) that scarcely was able to have patience to live. Um, Sounds like me when I was a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) Before she takes that turn, though, she makes this outrageous statement, which is, and it's at the end of the first paragraph, there was nothing on earth that would have grieved me. Mm. And it's she's not somebody who makes bold exaggerated statements i mean she's pretty careful with what she says but is it possible that there could be nothing on earth that would grieve you or me is it possible to be in such a state of grace and holiness that there would be nothing on earth that would grieve you and that's that's kind of where I stumbled. I'm, I'm, 
I don't know. I want to. I want to think that there is. I. I want to think that that is exactly how she felt, and that she was reporting accurately, one hundred percent clinical, scientific. Nothing on earth could have possibly grieved her. But it is astonishing to me, and not just because of what's going on in our world today, but it's just astonishing to me that she would say such a thing, and after twenty years would write such a thing and remember it that way. So. You know, previously, I probably would have said that this kind of um, peace, this repose, um, is impossible on this side of death. That it seems it seems to describe well this like this beatific vision that we come to after death, um, but her description of it as part of the revelations um, makes me wonder, like, does she was this a foretaste for her of that beatific vision, or that that will only be fully realized after death? Or is this the kind of repose that we're called to live in, in this life? Mm-hmm. That maybe that is another way of stating like what you're wondering, Margarita. Like, is this is this attainable for us? Exactly. Is it? Have I would the, love it to be. Have you never had moments, just even for fleeting seconds, where it feels like everything is just right? Absolutely, but just that fleeting seconds. Fleeting seconds. This the way she talks about it. It feels and she doesn't give us a time frame for how long she spent in this state, but it feels abiding. It feels uh, hmm. like it lingered, um, which is more than I've ever experienced. I, I feel these. I get these glimpses of that deep consolation, usually in the context of the Eucharist, and that I th- I think is at least a shadow of what she's talking about here. Um, Hmm. But she speaks in such strong words that nothing on earth would have grieved her that I don't know that I've experienced anything that is that profound and lasting, uh, a consolation that had of that intensity that had the staying power of what I'm seeing her describe. Hmm. Have you? Not for any period of time, but I think I can understand it a little bit. She was, of course, in a situation where she had no distractions. She wasn't walking down the street and looking at the beautiful sky and then, you know, saw somebody drive by or something. And so she had noticed. So so there's that. She had that. She had that advantage. I I think it is. I think it's possible to to feel this way. I don't think. I don't think it's. Here's the thing. I don't think it's important to feel this way, but I think it's important to know that you can feel this way. Oh. Because look how she goes then into um, into sadness. And then back and back into happiness. And 
She says it happens 20 times. <laughs> 20 times. Yeah, it's exactly what she says. 20 times. And what is, you know, what is the meaning of that? That that back and forth business. You know, what is what was what was our Lord showing her in that? I think she goes on later to say that he she that God wants her to know that he protects us equally surely in woe and in well. Right. So it's, it, it, it's not uncommon in the writings of mystics, not just in the Christian tradition, but to have these, to have descriptions of ecstasy And I suppose if uh, if it ever happened to me, I would I assume that I would recognize it when it happened. I have had moments of um kind of profound peace that that feel unlike ordinary life when it feels like everything is just suspended for a moment, and I'm. Um, somehow seeing everything differently for a second. So maybe, maybe it's common for people to be given glimpses of what is beyond, and it is uncommon for some people to be given more than glimpses. Mm. But... Now, I guess that raises the question of whether or not mystical experiences are, I mean, yes, we all agree that they are graces, they're gifts from God, that we, we have no right to demand anything, and and God gives graces however God dis- determines that they're going to be distributed. But do you think mysticism is accessible to everybody? Evelyn Underhill did. Uh, other people have said that no, that's that that mysticism is a very rare thing that that is its own charism, its own calling. I think um, I would say the attitude, the posture of mysticism is accessible, maybe even a universal vocation. But that the um, sort of heightened realization of that potential is a gift that is given maybe only rarely. Um, I, I think about... So I, I talk a lot in like parish formation things about the Benedictine spirit underlying the Book of Common Prayer and how um, the Anglican tradition is steeped in Benedictine values and the idea of bringing those Benedictine practices and values 
out of the monasteries into the parish churches. Now, it was to the detriment of the monasteries, the English Reformation, but the, the principle still stands that there was this effort to um, invite everybody into this asceticism, this sort of spiritual discipline. And I think that it's on, that's onto something um, that the sort of the posture, the practices, the orientation towards ascetic discipline, towards opening yourself up to a mystical union, that's something we should all try to embrace um, without viewing them as uh, sort of a vending machine where we put these practices in and get the mystical experience out. Right. Um, I, I would still call those that a cultivating a life of those practices mysticism um, because it is shaping our hearts to be open in the radical way that is most strikingly realized in these mystical visions. So I, I, I would be inclined to say that that's still mysticism. And that's something that every Christian is called into. But that doesn't always manifest in ecstatic experiences. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I agree too. I don't think that people should long for ecstatic experiences. I think that I think that's beside the point when it comes to our relationship with God. I think we only need to be aware to stop, look and listen and be open and be constantly seeking God because God is, God is always right there. God is always right here with us. And however minimally or maximally that plays out to someone, it is, I agree with you, Jay, and it, it is absolutely possible and likely for every Christian to have that experience in some way or another. I mean, we're all unique. So naturally what I feel isn't going to be what anyone else feels and what happens to me and what I sense or know isn't going to be what anybody else does. But I think we can get, bogged down by thinking that we have to go into some sort of ecstasy and float around the room in order to know that know that God is paying attention to us or lifting us up or wanting us. There's a, a course from the teaching company on mystic traditions in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, taught by Luke Timothy Johnson. I think he's at Emory. Um, and he talks about mysticism in terms of intimacy. That mysticism, at its, at its root, is 
the desire for and pursuit of an intimate relationship with ultimate reality, which is the kind of catch-all philosophical term he uses for God. Uh, he is Roman Catholic, but he is trying to approach it in a kind of interfaith context. But that mysticism is about that intimacy. Um, you know, the, the way the evangelicals talk about like a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, and I think, I think evangelicalism gets a lot wrong with how they approach that. But the idea that that is something that we're all called into, that, that, we're, that we're called into cultivating some sort of intimacy with God, and like you said, that manifests in a lot of different ways to varying levels of emotional intensity. Um, but that, that intimacy is what we're probably what we should be focused on rather than what it manifests as. I know this is, this is something that, um, I have struggled with, um, because I, I find myself um, kind of chasing the spiritual high of ecstatic moments, um, which I think is a distraction from the actual work of cultivating that mysticism, that mystical intimacy. Um, I, I think, and I, this I think holds true for some other people I've talked about this with, that um, my gaze often flits to the manifestation rather than the root. Mm -hmm. um, I, I th think similar to what you're talking about is um, I, I had uh, a friend of mine who is a monk sternly, as sternly as he's ever spoken to me, say <laughs> that he wanted me to stop saying contemplative prayer and to start saying contemplative practice when I was talking about the pattern of my prayer life. Because he said, contemplative prayer is a state that is a gift from God, that you do not always receive. You always have your contemplative practice, and that's the bit that you have control over. But the minute you start thinking that the 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 gift of contemplation is something that you can command because you've sat down on your, you know, the prayer stool that you bought specially for the purpose and you've lit in your lit your special candle and you sit down for your 20 minutes of silence, that that means automatically that you're going to have a certain experience of contemplation or of the awareness of God. You're getting it all wrong. That's he said. That's spiritual Pelagianism, and we are not Pelagians. Oh wow! <laughs> wow! Said, yes, brother. You're, yeah, uh, like I said. Out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that's that's right on the money. Like that. Yeah. Um, so he said, you can call it contemplative practice, like set aside your disciplined prayer time, but. Sometimes you will be given a gift that it looks a certain way, and sometimes you'll be given other gifts, and sometimes it'll be 20 minutes of, frankly, irritation, wasted time. What does she say? Annoyance with myself that scarcely was I able to have patience to live. That sometimes happens <laughs> as well. So maybe she, 
chapter 15 is just Julian describing my own prayer practices. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. God is always there. And she Equally talks about surely and woe and in well. She strike I, I actually love this, like kind of reading it about being about prayer practice, because she talks about in this in this woe that her, her only comfort was the faith, hope, and charity. And these she held in truth, but very little in feeling. That resonates with like some it resonates hugely with some of the dry periods I've had spiritually where I'm, uh, I'm like hanging on to these values and virtues by a thread. I'm not, I'm not feeling them. Yeah. Um, so just, uh, for listeners who don't have the book right in front of them, although you really should have a copy of this on hand while you're listening to this podcast, there's this, uh, it's the bottom of the second paragraph. There was no comfort or any ease for me except faith, hope, and love. And these I held in truth, parentheses, but very little in feeling, close parentheses. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, faith is me telling myself that I do believe all this stuff. Yes. Even though it doesn't feel like it. Yes. And that... That resonates a lot with like contemplative practice. Like if she's she's almost talking about the kind of range of ways we can experience our contemplative practice, um, and that that depth that where you're holding on to faith in truth but not in feeling definitely resonates with me. Um, she says um, also on, on the next page in the one, two, three, four, five, sixth, seventh paragraph, but for the benefit of man's soul, a man is sometimes left to himself, which I, I think this is such an important chapter. And I love that she says this, that she's so incredibly honest about this. Whatever happens to us has nothing to do with our effort or our, our, our inner holiness, or our record of good works, or anything at all. It's just... Sin is, sin is not always the call. She's, it has nothing to do with sin or lack of sin. You can be good as gold, or you can be just as evil as whatever, and God is still going to pop in or not pop in, depending on God's own will. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Oh, I love it. The res- resonances right there of John of the Cross's dark nights of the soul, of which there are different kinds. Um, yeah. The, the idea that sometimes uh, there is a feeling of the lack of God's presence, specifically when God is most present, because we're entering into a new quality of relationship and a new um, – it's like a, a a removal of the cast, you know, when when you've broken your leg or something and you've got this cast on and the cast is doing all the infrastructure and then you take it off, um, you feel weaker, although the reason you're able to take it off is because you're strong enough to sustain the weight on your own. But then you have to kind of re-strengthen all those muscles and keep on going with the healing. So when you are ready 
for the next level of kind of naked presence, just you and God, without any of the other adornments that keep us going, which are sometimes... Um, sometimes it's the adornments that keep us going more than anything else, like the paycheck or the feeling or the um, expectation of others or whatever it is. And ultimately, I think, you know, the, the goal is to reach this point or a goal is to reach a point where we come to this relationship with God expecting nothing bringing nothing, um, hoping for nothing, and just being receptive to whatever whatever happens. And both are one love. And both are one love. Uh, but freely our Lord gives when he wishes and permits us to be in woe sometimes. It's, that's a hard thing to read right now. Yes. Because there does feel like a lot of woe uh, all around. And yet it is God's will she says that we keep us in this comfort that both are one love with all our might because bliss is lasting without end and pain is passing and shall be brought to nothing for those who shall be saved. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it feels like that's the thing to cling to in um, thought, but not in feeling or held in truth but not in feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard now to even cling to it in truth. You know, as I'm falling asleep with the police helicopters and the sirens and the gunshots... It's uh, certainly not being held in feeling, and it's difficult to hold in truth. So today uh, is the commemoration of, uh, of the martyrs of Lyon. Tomorrow is the commemoration of the martyrs of Uganda. So we're right in the middle, and I've got all these books and things that I read to supplement my life because i think that the the more that i read the holier i am which is my my <laughs> own um crutch my own heresy but so there's a kind of a theme that shows up again and again in in discussion of martyrs on down through the ages this realization that the sufferings of this current time of their of their passion of the, of of the suffering and death that they go through is temporary and the the thing about the martyrs is that they know that it's temporary and they know that what is coming is this endless joy and bliss and union with God and so they're they're able to almost 
race into the lion's mouth because they know that like this will be over in a minute and then I get to spend eternity with Jesus. But it's difficult being a preacher and it's hap- it's happening right now for me as someone who preaches a lot. It happens any any time there's a school shooting. It happens any time we begin yet another war. Um any time there's um yet another black man killed by the police. I mean, I've been preaching for nearly 10 years, and every couple of years there are some sermons like this. And what what I try to do in the back of my mind is synthesize this awareness that, like, even the sufferings of the present hour are, in the grand scheme of things, as as nothing compared to the joy that is to come without making it sound like I'm just another straight white guy just saying, you know, I know it sucks right now, but it's all going to be okay. How yeah. not, how not to let it just become a platitude because it really isn't a platitude, but it sounds like a platitude because right. You know, all of our politicians say, well, you know, you've got my thoughts and prayers. Well, nothing gets done. Um, so, I mean, it's a challenge and I have no answers for it. I'm not asking the two of you for answers either. Although if you have sure. any good <laughs> advice, uh, let me know. As I, um, so as somebody who does not preach regularly um, and who hears preachers address these things from the perspective of a person of color who's queer. Um, I find that the times it doesn't feel like a platitude are the times that the preacher returns again and again to Christ. in explicit, sometimes vivid, um, sometimes dogged efforts to remind us that the, the strength to survive, the, the, the reason for hope has absolutely nothing to do with us in the end. That we don't have to just hang on or just suck it up and cope that that that's when we, when we divorce, when we divorce these kinds of messages from the cross, it so easily turns into something that comes across to the, to the congregation is like, well, just grin and bear it for a while. Um, but that's not the hope that our faith gives us. The, the hope lies in everything that, sh- that Julian places on either side of this well and woe, the, the plenteous bleeding and the, the drying of Christ's body so, so much that it evokes this spiritual thirst. Um, that it is, it's that mystery that is what we hold on to 
not an abstract notion that things will get better. It, it, it's, so, th- so the times that I feel most comforted by preachers in situations like we're in, where there's national world calamity, are those times that the preachers like Julian's curate who grabs the crucifix, puts it in front of her face, and like, behold, your savior. That's where I find comfort in the messages. I don't, I'm, like I said, I'm not preaching regularly, so I don't know how to make that play out in homiletics. But I can say that as somebody who's scared to death of any cop I see right now, the message of hope I need to hear is that that crucifix being held in front of my gaze. That's beautiful. I, that, yes. Just a great big yes. Keeping Christ front and center is an excellent segue to chapter 16. (laughs) After this, Christ showed a portion of his passion near his death. I wonder what it's like for Christ to be able to show a portion of his own death to somebody. What would it be like to be able to behold your own corpse? Hmm. That's sobering. Yeah. <laughs> um, huh. So this whole chapter is uh, um, is this meditation on this drying, the dryness, the drying up, which I've never thought about until. Julian, this the the notion of part of the process of dying as being a departure of moisture, a desiccation, a desiccation. And I thought of it as I was reading it of all of the perennials that I've I've planted. All um, my wife and I moved in um, two and a half years ago. And the minute we moved in, we started planting native perennial plants all around the house. And I've got um, like 400 of them all around the house and they're all pollinator friendly plants. And it's great. Um, We get butterflies all summer long here and bees all over the place. But what happens in the fall is that they all just turn brown and shrivel up. Mm -hmm. Um. So, yeah, this link between um, dying and drying. It's the same word except for the letter R, dying and drying. Even the blood dries up. Mm-hmm. The blood that just, yeah. just a few yeah, after, after it, pages ago was, after, yeah. After it flowed so plenteously, now it's, now it's dried up. And the wind is blowing and it's cold. And I, I have never, I mean, this is extra biblical for sure. This, is, this isn't anything that is, I've never read anything about the passion that 
describes death to this extent. And so I think it's her own special vision of of the of the of the death of Christ that is that she's talking about here. Um, it's not it's not familiar. It's not familiar to me. I mean, yes, plants plants dry up, and um, an animal that's old um, on the road will dry up if it's left there for a long enough time. Um, other deaths are not like that. Other deaths, do, this this doesn't happen. I mean, it may happen with other crucifixions, and I just I just don't know. I think that I think that it's meaningful in some kind of way that I that I can't figure out why she talks about the drying up so much why that is such a a key um image for her because it fills chapter 17 too it does the two chapters are are so i've been thinking about um the the link that clicks into my mind is um the association of things with life force so Hildegard of Bingen, who was, what is she, 10th century Benedictine German abbess? I think she was 10th century. Um, I'd be very embarrassed if I got that wrong. But anyway, she's great. I, I'm right about that. Um, but she has this this term uh, that she uses again and again, veriditas, the greening energy. Um, veriditas. And she just talks about kind of the the life force of God that is present in all things is expressed as a greenness, greening. You know, she talks about the greening of of all things in the spring and this kind of association of the color green as a metaphor, as a a summary, as a representative, uh, almost sacramental. Um, symbol for just the for for being connected to the to the life force that flows from the goodness of God. In the same way, I think now it's occurring to me in several places in Scripture, it's in Psalm one forty five, is it, where it's the you know God God's spirit God's breath is given to all things, and when. God gives that breath, things come to life, and when he takes that breath away, things die. Um, Poignant this week. Um, But this association of the Holy Spirit, the breath of God being the life force that fills all things that, that are alive. And so I'm drawing those two parallels together with this idea that, like, that the moisture that is in us, that, like, the that uh, water is life <laughs> that um that to be close to the life energy that flows from god is to be moist sorry a, nobody likes that word but to be <laughs> to be hydrated stay hydrated hydrate or die you know our bodies are whatever percent water they are we are evolved from the oceans and so to to 
be separated, to be cut off from the life that flows from God is to be breathless, it is to be not green, and it is to be desiccated. Um, and so this is a moment where she's able to see that uh, I think beyond the most apparent layer, you know, we all know what it's like for a body to die, but, but it's like the physical material of Christ's uh, human self is, is becoming uncreated even as she watches it. It's more than just, you know, there's a body and it's no longer alive. We've all seen that, but it's like his, the material of his, human self is becoming immaterial. It's becoming, it's unraveling. It's de, uh, de-resing from, uh, from Tron. <laughs> Tron, the movie. It's like the characters yeah. dissolve at yeah. one point and they, they de-res, they literally dissolve. Um, they unravel in their materialness. Anyway, that's where I went with that. <laughs> that's helpful. Um, and I think she talks about how there's a couple moments in 16 and 17 where she talks about how he, how Christ bears this alone. Um, and that adds to the isolation, this, this sense of like being cut off from the source of being. I, I don't, like, raises theological questions about what happened on the cross with the relationship between Christ and the Father, but I think setting those aside, like, this idea, this image of being cut off from the fount and bearing this pain alone, um, the blessed body of our Savior dried all alone a long time. That and what you said, Chris, about, about his being uncreated, losing life, where she says in chapter 16, almost at the end, this long torment seemed to me as if he had been seven nights lifeless dying which is interesting to me because we have the seven days of creation and now we have seven nights dying. She doesn't draw that parallel, but if he is literally being, if if creation is going away in them over seven days, that, that just, it, it just strikes me as, being, I mean, he did die for all of creation, right? He did die for everything and everyone. He drew all of creation to him on the cross in his suffering. So tying it to creation, in, it, is, it is my kind of thing to draw everything to creation. I, I start there and I end there all the time. And, but, but this one just seems pretty plain to me. It seems big. 
it has also just occurred to me, and I don't know, it, I feel a little dumb that it has taken me this long to make the link back to John 4, his Jesus's dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well, where he says, I am the water. And here he is with water having left him. He is like it is. As she says, uh, as Julian says at the end of chapter 16, that this drying of Christ's flesh was the worst pain in the last of his passion, that it's everything about him is going, is dying, is unraveling. Yeah. Whew. We're a cheerful lot today. It's uh it's <laughs> yeah, it's a not so cheerful chapter. I mean this uh this vivid imagery. The twisting of the nails and the weight of the body, the body sags because of the weight by hanging a long time, and the piercing and wrenching of the head and the binding of the crown, all parched with dry blood. This is just um it's very vivid imagery. Uh, it would be pretty tough to make like a children's book version of the revelations. <laughs> like it really does need like a, ma- a mature audience warning. Yeah. So this, this shit does this extended like 16 and 17 and most of 17, I think is, a vivid description of the drying. Um, and then towards the end of chapter 17, I feel like she sort of starts to unpack the theological significance. That showing of Christ's pains filled me with full pain, filled me full of pain, because I was well aware that he suffered only once, though he wished to show it to me, and fill me with awareness as I had before desired. That uh I know I keep I keep coming back to this, but it's it's truly um a really been a really helpful kind of concept that you Chris, you raised on the first episode of like the eternal suffering, the this idea of this once and eternal sacrifice, um, which I think she invokes again here. That, and that is what makes it possible for her to feel some of Christ's pains. This is where she, she talks about, like, this is not just her witnessing this. She's experiencing some of this pain. She is, and that's the fascinating pair of next paragraphs, her humility that grows, right? Mm-hmm. I felt no pain except Christ's pain. So she's sympathetic. She's feeling, well, is it sympathy or empathy? I can never remember which is which. But she's aware. Um, she's she's able to to empathize with Christ's pains a little bit. Then I thought, I knew, but what little pain it was that I asked for, because she remembers that she asked for this right back in 
the beginning of the book, we remember that. And we talked about it in the, the first episode, this, this puzzle where she says, you know, I wanted to know what the passion was like. Well, why on earth would you want to do that? Uh, well, to make sense of suffering. Um, but, and like a wretch, I repented me, thinking that if I had known what it would be, I would have been loath to have prayed for it. I didn't know it was going to be this bad. Be careful what you said. ask for, kids. Yeah, yeah. But then she goes on to this question and answer that begins to turn things. I thought, is any pain in hell like this? I think, I think her question at this point is, is the pain that I am currently experiencing in empathy with what I'm witnessing in Christ is the pain that I'm currently feeling. Is this what hell is like? And Jesus says, hell is a different pain for there is despair which I think is fascinating in and of itself. But of all pains that lead to salvation, this is the most pain to see thy beloved suffer. So it's not just pain. It's compassion, mm-hmm. compassion, the passion with suffering with the, the salvation, the pains that lead to salvation have this element in it that is that it is a linking together of souls. Mm-hmm. And this feels like a, a a turning point that it's not just gratuitously observing Christ's sufferings. It's Julian becoming aware that because she's witnessing Christ's suffering so profoundly, she herself is suffering a portion of Christ's sufferings and this beginning of, of the exploration of her own empathy. It's, we're not just suffering on our own. We're all suffering together. So although Christ dies on the cross by himself and she says that, you know, he's alone, he isn't because she's, you know, and and other mystics through the years, and really any Christian who pays attention to it, and anybody who experiences their own suffering and seeks to build bridges, begins to realize that suffering is a shared human experience, maybe a shared experience for all of creation, and that somehow this begins to build bridges of of um. I don't know, of, of meaning, whatever it is, that's what the next chapters are about, I guess. Yeah. Which is really the question that I'm left with right at the end of this. Is it possible to love without suffering? Can you say more about that? Nope. <laughs> I okay. will. Um, um, uh, um, um, are you saying, okay, let me ask it this way then, Chris. Okay. 
are you saying that a feeling of love is dependent on the ability to suck in general? Or are you saying you can't love someone who, w- without caring whether they suffer or not? I don't know. I don't know if I'm splitting those up. In my okay, mind. because I think that you can love the whole idea of caring whether somebody suffers or not, that love is kind of written into the contract. Mm-hmm. You know, if you love somebody, you don't want them to suffer. And if you see them suffering in any kind of way, it hurts you and you feel it. Yeah. But I think that before that even happens, the ability to love anyone, or I would even say anything, means that you have suffered somehow, somewhere not necessarily connected with what it is or who it is that you love, but you have suffered somehow and that you have in fact sinned because sin is suffering too. And I think those are things that, that you carry into the world that can make you, I don't want to say holy, that can make you open to, um, open to God. I'll buy that. Jan, you look thoughtful. <laughs> I'm just trying to, uh, I'm trying to parse it out and think, see what I think. I, I think Marguerite, you're absolutely right that, um, caring if somebody suffers, is part and parcel with love. Like that's, that's part of the contract, as you said. Um, I don't know what I think about the rest. I think, you know, if, there's this, this the concept of wanting that Julian uses, um, which isn't in this chapter, though it is immediately after this chapter. Um, there's a, a unitive aspect of love that I think ties us up with each other in a way that um, when they suffer, we suffer. Um, that it is I, I don't think this is not approaching it as a kind of precondition for love, but this is sort of what comes with love is being one to the other whether that's God or a spouse um, or just a friend. Um, with love comes this profound metaphysical ontological union um, with the other that 
brings with it sharing in it's 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 a communion you you share in the joy and in the pain and so as as you suffer the other person suffers as they suffer you suffer as you experience joy the other person experiences joy and vice versa um i think that it's a constitutive part of love not necessarily um I don't know that the pain and suffering is a constitutive part of love, but the, the union is a constitutive part of love. And that union means that if there is suffering, it is shared. I don't know if that makes sense or if that's off base. No, I, I think it may, it, of course I, it's, I agree a hundred percent with that. I was just abstracting it a little farther Okay. in saying that having suffered, I can love someone. Mm. I can love somebody who's walking down the street right now. Maybe they tripped over um, the pavement or something and hurt themselves. And I can feel that. Or maybe they didn't. Maybe I just see someone on the street and wave at them. And I can feel love for them. And I don't think I could feel that without having suffering in my resume. Yeah. Yeah, I think that resonates. And uh, I I don't know if that's, that's not something I've ever heard before or even said before. So, (laughs) See, on this podcast, we break new ground. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do we have any final thoughts on these chapters, 15, 16, and 17? the rapid cycling of Julian's mood and her meditation on death and uh, death and drying, dying and drying. I think, um, framing, framing the rapid cycling and just as sort of a pricey, a sort of encapsulation of, the spiritual life of, of the disciplines is helpful for me. Um, partly because it, so that, that chapter, chapter 15 is sandwiched on the, at the end it's sandwiched by these, the drying and this horrible pain. But right before it happened, happened the, the fiend being overcome and this honor filled favor. And so you, it's, it's situated between this height and this depth of desolation, um, which is helpful for me in thinking about it as part of the connected whole. That the Julian Julian has just experienced this uh, this really 
ecstatic um, sense of favor and having seen the the fiend vanquished. Um, and as as we transition to this horribly vivid description of Christ's last pain, um, Julian pauses and says, even in the heights and even in the depths, there is this one love. And that is the anchor that we're to hold on to. Um, that's where I see these these three sections kind of coming together, that this is sort of turning around that chapter 15, that the heights that she experienced and the depths that she's about to get into are tied together by this one love. I think about the Bob Marley song. (laughs) (laughs) One life, one love. Let's get together and be all right. You're not going to sing us a few lines. We probably don't have the budget to buy rights to it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Um, Yeah. He's looking down from heaven and smile at us. <laughs> Let's wrap it up there. Sounds good. Thank you. Let's pray for the many, many needs around us in compassion yeah. and in recognition that in the fullness of time, all shall be well. Amen. thank you for listening to this episode to find out more about dame julian the revelations of divine love the order of julian of norwich or us check the show notes to this episode you can reach me chris arnold the producer of this series at apple tree pods on twitter or on facebook you can find the page apple tree podcasts that's all for now we'll talk to you soon May God bless you.